0: Oxygenetics, ocean lovers, and fans of science-based facts and fact-based reality. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Laren young author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. And thanks for checking out our podcast. And it's pretty darn cool how many of you are checking out the podcast. The week we launched, we hit number four on the iTunes charts for natural sciences, just behind National Public Radio, How Stuff Works, and some dude named DeGrasse Tyson. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, and mahalo. I feel like I've been looking forward to talking to this episode's guest forever. When I first started as a freelance journalist, I was pitching a story about orcas, and the editor asked if I'd ever heard of The Whale Lady. The Whale Lady? Yeah, she lives up in this remote part of BC with the orcas, and she's studying their language. The editor told me she was like BC's very own Jane Goodall, and I thought, I've got to meet her. Last year, I finally met the Whale Lady. These days, she's probably better known as the Salmon Lady. I first said hi to her on board the Sea Shepherd vessel, the Martin Sheen, just as Alexandra Morton was about to launch her mission to visit and shame BC's open sea salmon farms. Alexandra Morton started studying whales in Echo Bay, BC in 1984. Her book about a baby northern resident, Saweetie, has been called one of BC's 200 most significant books. She worked with the legendary John Lilly, and she studied whale languages for decades before she started worrying about their environment. I talked to Morton a few weeks ago, just after she was in court over charges of trespassing for the crime of sampling the bacteria around a fish farm with a spoon. Yes, Morton has been charged with unlawful spooning. We'd like to dedicate this podcast to one of Canada's most tireless environmental heroes, a woman who dedicated her life to doing her part to improve the planet, Gwen Barley, longtime director of the Wilderness Committee, a force of nature, and a force for nature, who I was lucky enough to get to know in recent years during her tireless work on behalf of people living with Lyme disease. For more on Gwen, and to donate to her memorial fund, check out our show notes at Scanner.org. This episode is brought to you by our heroes who are making this happen through Patreon.com like Eagle Wing Tours, It's Only Natural Clothing, Jan Cadeau, Nicole Natras, Diane Wilde, and Joseph Planta, host of the awesome interview podcast, Planta on the Line. And now, let's meet Alexandra Morton and her infamous spoon. Well, I'm William Shatner, and uh, I'd like just to tell you something that's really important to all of us. The British Columbia, especially in the Fraser River salmon, are dying. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Yes, thank you. It's, it's great to be able to talk to a lot of people in just one conversation, so I appreciate it a lot.
0: What the heck happened in court today?
1: Uh, Well, it was just a side motion, but you know, basically the uh, Minister of Fisheries, Marine Harvest and Surmac, so the two biggest salmon farming companies and our minister, um, are fighting to be able to use diseased fish. And this was just a motion, technical motion to that end. But it was uh, interesting, I mean, I'm very lucky that Eco Justice is my lawyer, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to afford this, and really she was phenomenal, so I'm hopeful.
0: Okay. Um, now, was was this your, you know, spooning charge? I, I knew you were dangerous, but I didn't realize that, you know, you carried a lethal spoon with you, and you were like, you know, I, I understand if you were charged for using a fork or a spork, but you've got to walk through how you've been charged with using a spoon. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down In a most delightful way
1: Yes, well, I went up to a farm in a speedboat, and they have these really large metal buoys that are used to uh, hold up their anchors. And on it, there was some bird droppings. And because I study transmission of disease, I thought, hmm, I wonder if the birds are picking up this virus that I'm looking for, piscium virus. So, I reached out from the speedboat with a teaspoon and scooped a bird dropping and put it in the little thing. And you know, at the time we were doing that. We thought, wouldn't that be hilarious if Marina Harvest charged me for touching them with a teaspoon? And sure enough, unbelievable. So, I mean, while it's humorous, it's, it's really offensive in another way because what I'm studying is the impact of these farms on our fish. And so sea lice, uh, 87% of the young salmon leaving, you know, parts of this coast, the Broughton Archipelago, Musco, Musco- Territory, are heavily infected with sea lice from fish farms. Viruses, I'm tracking how they're spreading. Um, and so, you know, their impact on us is enormous, but touch them with a teaspoon and they freak out. So it's seems. I, I mean, I hope it doesn't go to court. If it does, it's
0: ridiculous. It's kind of mind blowing. I, I mean, when I heard that you've been charged for doing something on the market machine, Teaspoon? Yeah, well, did, didn't see that coming. I know. I know. So it's funny that you were even joking about that. So this was when you were on the Martin Sheen, right?
1: That's right. I, I was actually in a small speedboat off of the Sheen when I when I actually touched it with the teaspoon. But I mean, part of why Marine Harvest got so upset is because 60 First Nations went onto one of their farms and conducted what they called a cleansing ceremony. Uh, it was a symbolic gesture cleansing their waters of this industry, and they served marine harvest with an eviction notice. They do not want salmon farms in their territory. Um, they've been saying no for 30 years, and yet one third of the salmon farming industry in British Columbia is in their territory.
0: The Mamalola cl- hereditary chiefs never ever agreed to the fish farms. We're standing at the edge of the cliff right now today. This is the most important part of our history.
1: And all the waste from these farms is pouring out, whether it's viruses, bacteria, you know, drugs, just fish waste. And, um, and so they, they did the ceremony and Marine Harvest sued Alexander Morton and John and Jane Doe and all persons unknown on the farm. So that included 60 First Nations in their own territory. And so three of them, three Zawadanic leaders, came back to Marine Harvest and filed an affidavit and said, we have names, this is what our names are, and we contest you being in our territory. And Marine Harvest folded like that. They, Their lawyers appear to have made a, a judgment call that they do not want to go to court to contest uh, being in the territory of First Nations who do not want them there. But they could not bring themselves to drop the charge against me. And so um, I guess I've got their attention. And uh, I think Marine Harvest looks ridiculous. I wrote to the CEO in Norway and I said, you know, please watch my Facebook page because now we're up to I think 45,000 views of a two-minute video I did explaining this. And I said, you, you look ridiculous. It's time for you to make the next step. Get yourselves in a tank put up barbed wire, nobody's going to touch you with a teaspoon, you're, you're safe, and you could start really making food and not impacting our wild fish. So we'll see what happens.
0: Can you talk through the overall case, the, the overall case you got with Ecojustice? Because I talked to Ecojustice about the case against Kinder Morgan, but uh, the lawyer talked to you in title, said that I should talk to somebody else about your case, and who better than you?
1: Right. Uh, so this is completely separate from the teaspoon incident. Um, so about three years ago, I got a tip that Marine Harvest was about to transfer fish from one of their hatcheries, the Dalrymple Creek Hatchery near Sayward, just north of Campbell River, where they were, they were going to transfer them by boat to a salmon farm off Port Hardy. And I thought, this can't be legal. You can't transfer diseased fish uh, from from a, a wild fish hatchery into the rivers and, and you know, lakes and marine waters. It can't be possible that they're, they're legally able to transfer diseased Atlantic salmon. So I began to look into it and, oh, actually it was legal. And, uh, and so I went to Ecojustice and I said, you know, would you guys be willing to take this case up? Because I don't think this law is, is in the interest of Canadians present or future, in the interest of this coast, to allow them to transfer diseased fish and they reviewed the case and they took it on and they argued it successfully. And um, the decision that we got was that the Minister of Fisheries should be uh, applying the precautionary principle because section 56 of our Fisheries Act says you can't put diseased fish in our waters. Fish that are carrying uh, a disease agent or who are sick themselves, you cannot transfer these into the into the marine water. So that means that the minister has to know if these fish are diseased or not before they're transferred. Well, the problem for the industry is that over 80 percent of them, of their farm fish, are infected with this piscine riovirus. So, piscine riovirus is this blood virus and it gets into their red blood cells and uh, as soon as the fish are stressed it It damages their heart, I mean severely damaged it's severe heart damage. The fish can barely move, and um so the trouble for the salmon farming industry is if they can't use diseased fish, they probably don't have fish they can farm with., wow. so we won the decision the the judge said the minister you know has to use the precautionary principle. he has to know if these fish are diseased or not, which means he needs to test well. Minister of Fisheries and Marine Harvest both appealed the case, the decision. And then one of their own scientists found out that this virus was causing disease in British Columbia because the story before then had been, oh yeah, 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 no, we're effect- infected, but it's not causing disease causes a disease in Norway, but somehow it's not causing disease in British Columbia, which, you know, I suppose may have been possible. There might have been another little agent involved, you know, that was missing here. But one of their own uh, discovered that it was causing disease uh, in British Columbia, and I think that's what caused the Minister of Fisheries to to pull back. So they withdrew the appeal the end of last year, but by then I was writing to the Introduction and Transfer Committee saying, okay, so I won this lawsuit. Are you guys now testing for Rio And they said, no. I was like, really? I mean, now, now you're, <laughs> you know, the law says you have to test. We won this in court and still they weren't testing. So I'm very lucky. Ecojustice agreed to go back to court and that's what we started today. Uh, basically to force the Minister of Fisheries to abide by the laws of Canada and apply the precautionary principle and test. And, you know, our our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, gave the mandate to the Minister of Fisheries to use science to conserve our wild fish and fisheries. And the science is saying Piscine riovirus causes disease and therefore, you know, you should not be putting this in the water. and the very least, you should be testing. And yet the minister won't do that. And I have to wonder, does he really know that he's fighting me so that marine harvest and CERMAC, who's owned by Mitsubishi, can put diseased Atlantic salmon into the major migration routes of this coast? I, I just can't believe that he actually knows that this is going on. I mean it just on the surface. I mean it looks really bad.
0: nautical nonsense be something you wish. Glass, glass, then drop on the deck and flop like a fish. No, this is the virus that makes the salmon look sort of like pink slime. I remember the pink <laughs> slime, you know. I remember the the big scandal about pink slime and then I remember seeing the diseased fish, where you kind of touched it, it, just looked like goo. The salmon look like, is that... The, no. Is this the goo virus, or is this the virus where it looks like they've got bugs?
1: This virus um, makes them lethargic, slow, and so they're very skinny. They're not gaining weight. You can find them in Superstore. In fact, that's where I shop for viruses. Um,
0: that's just and, horrifying.
1: Yeah, I go. I go to the supermarkets to get... Atlantic salmon because the farmers won't let me obviously have any. Um, but no, it, it they, so they're just lying around on the surface of the water. They generally collect in the air bubbles and because they're so desperate for oxygen, and the farm salmon can actually recover from it because they can lie around and there's no predators. But the thought is the wild salmon are going to get snapped up by an eagle or a killer whale or a seal. They're, they're not going to survive this. Um, and. Norwegians don't think a, a salmon that are affected by this virus can jump up a waterfall. So, it's very serious. It's very contagious.
0: Wow! Can you talk about how you got into salmon? How how this switched for you? Because I always knew you as the whale lady.
1: You yes. know, I remember, like,
0: I think that that was how I first heard your name. I was working for a magazine, pitching a story about whales. I said, Have you heard about the whale lady, Alexander Morton? So I'd read about you. Forever. Um, and it was fascinating when you switched over and you became the champion uh, against fish farms.
1: Right. Well, you know, it happens to every biologist that goes into the field uh, for long enough. Um, you know, as a girl, I read every book on uh, people that went into the wilderness to study animals. And every single book was divided into three parts. And the first part was this amazing voyage of discovery the place, the animal, the people and the second part was always uh-oh something is going very wrong you know and and the biologist realizes that the that the, the the animal and the environment they now live in and they love uh, is being destroyed by something and then the third part of the book is always trying to figure out how to stop this and 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 protect the people and the animal and the place so i was determined I I went into this armed. I was determined not to get into part two of the book. I was going to stay in part one, and so I just plugged my ears about whales in captivity, which I feel very badly about now. I didn't do do anything about logging, which was a big issue when I first came to this area. I was just little miss science. That's all I was going to do, and then I uh, I spent a lot of time talking to fishermen because fishermen are salmon predators who can speak English as opposed to the whales, which are salmon predators, which don't speak English. And so to figure out what the whales were doing, the fishermen were just a wealth of knowledge. You know, I'd say, well, you know, do you know why the, the orca go along with just five inches of their fin above the water in, in, in um, Kinkum Inlet in the spring? It's the only time they ever do that. And they're like, oh yeah, glacier meltwater six feet down, Chinook salmon are right there. And sure enough, the whales were down there looking for the salmon. And so they came to me, and uh, when the farms first came in, I thought they were a great idea. I thought they were going to keep our school open. We had, you know, we're a little float house community. We had a one-room school. There's no roads. You can only get there by boat. This is Echo Bay. Echo Bay, yeah. that's right. And uh, so I, I actually offered to, you know, help women figure out whether they wanted to live there with their kids, because I just thought it was the best life possible. And But the fishermen came to me and they said, you know, they're putting these things in all the wrong places. I was like, what do you mean? They, they said, well, they're putting them in all the places that, that are most populated by salmon, prawns, and rock cod. These were the three fisheries that were important to my community. And they said, could you talk to DFO about this? Because I was the only person with a word processor, which is what we called our computers in those days. It's about uh, what is this, 1987, and uh, I had a great relationship with DFO with studying the whales. Fantastic people there, and I, I, you know, we worked very closely. And so I began writing letters, and DFO kept writing back, "Dear Ms. Morton, you have no evidence," and I kept writing them back and see seeing more people, and so I had this little. Uh, a little copy machine that you opened up and did each piece and went back and forth and I, you know, fire up the generator and I'd put a little hatch mark over the um, over the copy machine for every 500 pages of paper. Well, I sent over 10,000 pages of letters. the The postmistress said for a period of time I kept the post office open. I'd just <laughs> going down with you know, because I I was so convinced that if I just lined up my words in the right order, remained calm gave them all the evidence. They would say, oh, 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 okay, all right, there's a better way to do this. Let's get them off the migration routes. Let's do this. Let's put less farms here. Let's." But no, they never listened to me. And that began to concern me. Uh, the fish were disappearing. They displaced the whales with high uh, amplitude acoustic seal scaring devices. I mean, one family after the next came in and never came back, which was, devastating because you don't know that last time you see that family come through you don't know that's the last time until like 2 years later and i began to doubt myself i was like well how could a whale researcher be where there's no whales and i was comfortable there though i i lived there i loved the place my son was in school and i eventually realized that writing letters wasn't going to work and so i began to do the science and and began to publish on it and that didn't work, and so I, I turned to activism. I went to Norway. I met with the shareholders. I, you know, I've just gone to court now. I think five times. Um, I'm determined not to let these salmon go down on my watch because you know I, I I know everything they've done. I I was there from the beginning. I've seen everything, and they're causing enormous damage to this coast.
0: What's mind-boggling for me was when I first heard about aquaculture. I thought it sounded brilliant. Like, I thought this sounded like the way to save the world. But I assumed that aquaculture took place outside of the oceans. And I remember being totally shocked when I realized that the salmon farms were basically set up so the salmon were eating the same... The farmed salmon had free access to all of the fish in the ocean, were, you know, using the ocean as their washroom, and... Basically, we'd somehow gifted our oceans to these farms? Yes. Is that more or less accurate?
1: That that is accurate. And, you know, now, after so many years of being on this, uh, my view is that there's a deal somewhere.
0: Well, that's what I've wondered is I'm, I'm trying to follow the money and I'm going, where is the money in killing the wild salmon? Like where, how does this work?
1: Like yeah, I because don't...
0: normally there's a trail and I'm kind to go, what's the trail? Like where is the win in supporting farm salmon over wild salmon and supporting the active fisheries?
1: So this is the this is really the question. And and I've noticed, you know, good people get into government, they go in with good intentions, they believe me, they believe the science and all the other people in British Columbia are talking about this. They get into government, and suddenly they're deaf, and they will not do anything. And that makes me think they're running into something that none of us can see. Like, the first people that I met in government that were concerned about this were in the provincial ministry of environment. There was a group of men who were fighting hard to keep Atlantic salmon out. They said, we're playing Russian roulette with disease. We're going to get disease. and. But they said to me, what happened in the 80s was men in suits showed up and they said it was a done deal. We were getting Atlantic salmon. There was no scientific debate. Even the director general of DFO, Pat Shemute, he said, we are guaranteed to get an exotic disease, probably one we've never heard of. Yeah, Pat, you were right. You were absolutely right. Dave Narver from the Ministry of Environment said, we're playing Russian roulette with our steelhead and our wild salmon because we're letting all these millions of atlantic salmon in with very little <laughs> very little testing going on and and as they pointed out you can't test for a lot of these things cuz like piscine reovirus nobody even knew it existed before 2010 so i imagine that it's something like Canada maybe going to Norway and saying, oh please Norway, will you come and dig in our tar sands? And Norway saying something like, sure, but throw in the BC coast. It's something like that because people say to me, oh Alex, it's about the jobs. Really? There are no processing plants in Sointula anymore. There are no processing plants in Alert Bay anymore. The fishing fleet is gone. The sport fishing fleet is down to almost nothing. The, the fishing lodges in my area are roasting pigs for their big celebrations, not salmon. It, they, they, the, the amount, they, the financial loss to British Columbia is enormous, and the financial loss to these small communities is catastrophic. And in Norway, it costs a couple of million dollars to get a piece of the ocean to farm. Canada Virtually gives it away for a few thousand dollars we're not even charging them a fair price so there's something funky here and I don't know what it is but we will find out and um, so here we have this we had this beautiful young government we all had such high hopes and honestly uh, this minister is doing worse than Stephen Harper I mean, we had the worst sockeye return ever in the history of studying sockeye. DFO did not even blink. They don't care. They don't want wild fish. That is my my assessment. After you know, years, decades of being on this, if they wanted wild fish, there is such a great way to go. And so what the government could do. Talk to the businessmen who are already pioneering land-based aquaculture. Go to them and say, what do you guys need to make your industry grow? Because right now, land-based aquaculture is growing in the shade under these Norwegian aggressive companies. Uh, they're, 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 they can't blossom because they've got this cheap thing going on. So talk to Canadians who are fish farming on land. There's no Canadians fish farming in the ocean in British Columbia. These are all foreign companies, Japanese or or Norwegian. And then buried in DFO is this remarkable scientist, Dr. Christy Miller, and she can read the immune system of fish. And so by doing that, the fish can talk to us. And so if we were to test our wild salmon all the way down the Fraser River and up the coast, like every couple hundred kilometers, and just look what's embedded in their immune system, you know, did they feed properly? Was, was the water too warm? Did they have a virus? Did they have a bacteria? Did they have sea lice? You know There's a myriad of things they can tell us. You could do that, look at that and go, "Hmm, how can we fix that? You know, if it's chemical pollution or it's virus, what can we move? What can we change about our behavior? We could start loosening the bottlenecks that these fish are going through by changing our behavior. And the powerful thing about the science is you can go back the next year and you can ask the fish again, did we make it better for you? And the fish can say yes or no, or you made it worse or... But we get get real feedback from the fish themselves. I mean, it goes back to the First Nation legends where they too could hear what the fish were saying. So Canada could become this remarkable leader in land-based aquaculture, which the markets want, and restoring wild fish using genomic profiling, I tell you, every country would come knocking on our door and say, how did you do that, Canada?
0: Okay. If you remove the keystone of an arch, the whole arch collapses. That's exactly what these natural systems do. And so I figured, well, why not just call it a keystone? Explain the concept of keystone species and what salmon mean to us as a keystone species.
1: Yes. So, keystone species means that if that species is removed, things start to collapse. It means it's the key to the lock that opens the door to a whole ecosystem. And, you know, some people say to me, Oh, I don't eat salmon, I don't really care. And I say, Well, do you breathe? because salmon are feeding the trees that make the oxygen we breathe, the trees that are pulling carbon out of our polluted atmosphere. You can actually measure the size of salmon run by looking at the growth rings of the tree. They, the, the salmon bring in a special form of nitrogen, and so there's no guessing about this. You can trace the, the salmon, the nutrients the salmon are bringing in all the way up into the alpine, and it's in the order of tons and tons and tons. In a healthy system, they also feed over 100 species, from bugs to the orca to the eagles, the bears, coastal communities. They are essential to First Nation, First Nation culture and diet. And First Nations, uh, you know, they have evolved over time here. If you watch a bunch of children in Alert Bay getting off the ferry to go to school. The First Nation kids are all in t shirts. The non First Nation kids have all got their coats on. They're adapted. And that a large part of that is diet. And they have been eating salmon for so long that it's part of them. It is important. I mean, I don't know that people really get that. And so if you have wild salmon, you have a cleaner atmosphere, you have trees that are pumping out oxygen, you have healthy coastal communities, you have vibrant orca populations which are fueling a 1.4 billion dollar tourism industry in British Columbia, you have fishermen, you have food security. Um, the the gains financially, emotionally, spiritually in every way are so much greater for wild salmon than farms.
0: It blew my mind when I realized that the salmon fed the forests. Yeah, you know when I, when I wrap my head around the the whole idea that you could actually measure the forest by the salmon, run, even going quite far up into the forest because the bears would take the salmon. You know, the bear scat would. Yeah. You know, would feed the trees. Like realizing how phenomenally interconnected everything. Yeah. Is.
1: When you when I, you know when I think of the salmon coming back in the fall, I just think of this like lush green following with them as they come um, and in the spring I study the juveniles going out so they're just the little tiny ones and everybody's following them. There's mergansers and kingfishers and then there's the trout and the chinook fry or um, smolts and the coho smolts they're following them and you know it's just from the moment the salmon egg leaves the mother's body it's feeding the world around them. It, it's there's not a lot of species on earth that are designed to feed the masses. They can feed all of us and thrive. They are just, they're so remarkable and they're such a gift and they're so important. They are a bloodstream. And I, I don't say that lightly They're, but they're, they go out in the open ocean and they're gathering the, basically the energy of the sun hitting the ocean because the sun hits the ocean. It creates these good plankton blooms, which feed little fish and then the salmon eat those fish and they bring that all back home and they defy gravity and they take it up the watershed and they feed the trees. And um, somehow we have lost that memory, that connection, that understanding. I mean, sometimes government feels to me like a berserk person gone wild on a lawnmower and he's cut running over all the power cords that are, you know, they're cutting the lines to our house. We're gonna go dim, we're not gonna have any hot water. That's that's what is going on right now. This is not about jobs. This is, a, this is honestly, it's a form of insanity where you cannot see the um, the workings of life. You can't see those gears and all of that is happening. You think you can just break all that and and get away with it. It's just, we're not gonna survive this attitude.
0: Well, when you were talking about those stories, I've done a lot of interviews with forest campaigners who all started out, they were going to save one particular forest or one particular standard trees. They were, you know, pick the battle, whether it was clap, what mirrors, whatever. That was what they were going to say. And now it's turned into, oh, wow, this is really about global warming. This is really about climate change. Um, and. It hits me that with whales, you realize this is really, I mean, again, climate change, but also salmon, no salmon, no whales.
1: No salmon, no whales. It is climate change because I feel that a place on earth that still makes clean air, water, and food, whoa, the covenant needs to be placed on that right now. I mean, people don't, people in British Columbia maybe don't grasp how incredibly fortunate we are that we haven't taken it completely apart. We're getting there. We are dissembling it. But um, you know what it all comes down to? It comes down to one fundamental shift in us. Instead of looking at a place and saying, oh, let's wipe out that mountain and let's divert that stream and let's flatten this and change that and dig that up. And if we looked at a system and go, okay, so those clouds are bringing in rain. That's feeding all of this. And this is creating this energy and that's making a nice place for us to live. How can we dovetail into that? How can we see this whole network and find our place in it so that we can benefit from it? Because, you know, we talk about robbing future generations, but I have an 18-month old grandson, and it's really hard to look him in the eyes because we are taking away everything that I love and he would love. We're taking away richness of life. We're taking away the ability to survive. It really is a form of insanity that we do not act on this. And I believe Trudeau is a good man. I know many people don't. I believe that Dominique LeBlanc, our Minister of Fisheries, is probably a good man. He probably loves his children. They probably both do. And yet what they are doing to their own children and ours, and us, and the whales, is unforgivable. Their farm is illegally parked in the in of territory without our consent. It's an abomination to our way of life.
0: Now, we're talking about your, the story of environmentalists going in three parts. If we can go a bit to part one, do you remember the first time you saw a whale?
1: I do. <laughs> it was actually in the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> I was I was on a banana freighter, and um, I thought it was a big shark. And I, I really wasn't all that interested in it. I was uh, fascinated in turtles and, and reptiles and amphibians, but I I really wanted to I really wanted to study non-human communication because so, as a girl as a child I just always felt like Language was such. There's so much room for error, you know. And, but the animals always seemed to know perfectly what they were talking to each other about. They seemed to know where they fit exactly. They seemed much more calm about their social scene, whereas me, I never really could figure out where I fit, and honestly, I still can't. But, um, and I chose whales because I, I didn't really like primates. I just wasn't excited about gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees and. Elephants lived so far away, um, and so I, I studied. I, I chose dolphins and began in an oceanarium. And then um, I was uh, I was in the oceanarium when the killer whale gave birth. This was the first time a killer whale had ever given birth in captivity. And so the curator asked if I would take my recording gear up there and record this, and I did. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is my animal," because all of their vocalizations were in my hearing range. The dolphins kept leaving my hearing range, and you know they heard a higher, higher pitch than I could hear, and they were very fast talkers, and they talked over each other. But the orca were beautiful, polite, comfortable for me to hear, and I just became fascinated with them. And then um, over a period of a few years, I watched them conceive and lose a number of calves just because they... The mom did not know how to feed them. and She was devastated, I was devastated, everybody was devastated. And I realized I was studying communication in animals that were suffering enormously and were not at all normal. And So I phoned up DFO. I said, I'm working with two orca from British Columbia, do you know what family they're from? Uh, which was a long shot. But just at that time, people in DFO were starting to do photo ID, and they found every dorsal fin looked different. And during the captures, people took pictures, and these poor terrified babies that were being ripped away from their moms were, of course, right with their moms surfacing, and and the moms were still showing up in the ID pictures. And so uh, Dr. Michael Bigg from the Pacific Biological Station sent me a bunch of Xeroxed sheets and goes, here's her family, go to Alert Bay in August. That's what I would suggest. And so I I, uh, I bought a used 12 and a half foot Zodiac and an engine and had no seawater experience. <laughs> Threw it in a pickup truck with a friend and came up, blew up the boat and uh, put in in Alert Bay and the pot of whales was just right there. You know, that w- that was not uncommon in those days because there were so many salmon. So, and I just took one sniff of British Columbia and I said, well, this is it, this is my home.
0: Now, when you hooked up with Michael Big, was that when people were still sort of questioning his idea of photo ID? Because I know originally people thought he was nuts when he said he could ID every individual whale.
1: I think he was, I mean, I certainly believed him and maybe I, I wasn't sensitive to the greater public, uh, but within the scientific community, we all felt he was really onto something. And... Uh, you know, he saved the whales at this coast because what happened was when an oceanarium wanted to take a whale now, it was kind of like, uh, so which whale is it going to be? You know, you going to take this guy's daughter or this female's son? Or are you going to take this family? You know, it was no longer a nameless population. They were individuals. And that just shut it down right there.
0: and then. Now, when you moved to Echo Bay, I gather you were one of the first people who really helped with cataloging the transients.
1: That's right. Uh, So I I followed whales into Echo Bay, found this little community. Um, By then I was uh, married with a little baby and we lived in a boat and um, we were looking for a place to study whales year round. Found this little community of Echo Bay in these sheltered inlets. So it was nice, calm water for me to to do the research in. And transients kept showing up during the winter. And uh, this was very exciting to everybody because nobody knew what whales did in the winter. And so yeah, I began to work with the mammal eating population, but they really weren't <laughs> what I was after because first of all they're silent most of the time because their prey can hear them and run. Uh but second of all, I, I, I didn't really like the kills. I I uh my advice to any marine mammal that has a transient taking after you is don't don't look back, just keep going. Don't get confused, just keep going and just get
0: out of there. <laughs> I, I hated it. Yeah, when you see the transients, you get where the name killer whale comes from.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it made me wonder how it was they were tolerating me because they're incredibly powerful. And, uh, but working with the orca was endlessly fascinating. I mean, there's nothing random about those whales. Um, family means everything to them. Their use of sound is fascinating. I mean, I wished I'd been spending all this time the tracking bad guys. <laughs> I I wished I'd spent this time studying whales, uh, because I would know a lot about what they're saying at this point. But, it's the way it goes.
0: Um, now, if we could rewind just a bit. When you were studying language, I gather you studied with, with John Lilly. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yes. Well, um, So, John Lilly um, was a a neurophysiologist, so he studied the human brain and he was very interested in the concept of intelligence. And he realized in his work that the dolphin's brain had everything over ours that we thought we had over the chimps. So bigger, uh, more of that neocortex, the outer layer, more convoluted. And he thought, wow, this is an animal that's holding its breath. Brains need an enormous amount of oxygen. That brain would not be in that dolphin if he was, wasn't using it. So he was very interested in what they were um, doing with that brain, and uh, he he tried to teach them a language so they could speak. You know, like people have taught um, primate sign language, but the whole dolphin verbs and or um, vowels and consonants didn't really work with the way they have the mechanism they have for vocalizing. So um uh, he was on the verge of teaching them a digital language and in hopes that they could interface with a computer but uh when i met him um so so i'd read all his books and i i really wanted to work with him i wanted to be that woman that that did the experiment where she lived with a dolphin uh, very uncomfortable for both of them but very bonding and and they they learned a lot and um so i i uh, i was an artist i am an artist as well and I phoned him up and just blurted out that I really wanted to to meet him and 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 you know did he want to see my portfolio and I don't know why he said yes because after working with him I know he gets those calls a lot and he he never picks up the phone but he did that day and he had me come up and paint a mural in his hallway and one day the door at the end of the hall was cracked open and this is hot southern california and there was all this cold air pouring out so of course i went to close the door and i looked in and it was wall-to-wall audio tapes i was like oh my gosh this is his work from the virgin islands that he had done previously and so that evening as i packed up my paints i was getting ready to go i i said do you think i could listen to some of your tapes and um, john was very dry very stern very uh, imposing, frightening human. And uh, he's like, no. And I guess my face must have just fallen. And then he goes, well, I need somebody to catalog them. And I said, well, could I listen to them while I'm cataloging them? He said, okay. So for two years on Sunday, I would go up and pile on the sweaters and go into this refrigerated room. And listen to these experiments where the woman was living with the dolphin and uh times when the you know he had um, uh hydrophone suction cups right on their heads and so it it sounded like you were inside their head uh uh some strange experiments as well but uh i i just was no longer interested in teaching them anything i wanted to know
0: what they were saying
1: and so that's when I began volunteering at the oceanarium to listen to their dolphins.
0: Now, when you were at the oceanarium, you were there with Corky, right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Do you have any memories of Corky?
1: Oh, yes. I have tons of memories of Corky. I mean, she's still alive, and I feel very badly that she's, she's still in a tank, and I'm out where her family is. Um, but uh, Corky uh, is a remarkable whale. She's an she, enormous optimist. And, um, you know, I mean, everybody who works with orca eventually (laughs) comes to the conclusion that there's some ability for them to read your mind. And I know that that is a very flaky concept, and I'm sure I'm going to be hearing it from marine harvest, but um, there was this one remarkable experience where after my first summer in British Columbia, I went back to San Diego and... I was at the aquarium, and I was talking to one of the trainers, and I said, you know, I'd love to see how you start training these animals. How how do you get, how does Corky know what you want her to do, and how do you get her to wave her fin, you know? And the trainer said, well, sure, we could do that, but I've kind of run out of things to train her, you know? She already does this and does this and does this. And so I said, thinking it, in the wild, I've seen the whales come up, and in the height of their surfacing, roll over and slap their dorsal fin hard on the surface. And I had been watching Corky by then for uh, 12 hours during the day, 12 hours during the night, you know, once a month for years, and never seen her do that, and trainer had never seen that either. And so uh, trainer goes, sure, we'll, we'll do that one day. And so she heads off, Corky comes up, surface, slaps her dorsal fin on the surface does it again, does it again. So I go running down the ramp. I said, you gotta see this. Grab the trainer, run up. By now, Corky has this huge wave happening in the pool and Corky's riding up to the top of the wave and slapping her dorsal fin down. And the trainer looks at her and goes, yeah, that's killer whales for you, you know. So uh, there there was yeah, huge learning curve in working with whales.
0: That idea of psychic whales came up, that's come up repeatedly when I've interviewed people at whales. Somebody told me that you had a story about the whales rescuing you once.
1: It's true. Uh, it was my second year up in British Columbia in 1980 and still out in the 12 and a half foot zodiac, still completely stupid about being on the water. So I had no compass, no VHF radio. And uh, I was in Queen Charlotte Strait and I could see there was a fog bank coming but it's hard to tell how close fog is because there's no, like, hard boundary. And I was following these whales, and, you know, what I would do is I'd go up ahead of them, drop my hydrophone, and, and wait and, you know, record their sounds and their behavior as they pass me. And so I'm sitting there doing that, writing notes, and suddenly it becomes damp, and I look up, and it, you know, I feel like I'm in a glass of milk, and it's dead calm water. So there was, like, no wave pattern to follow. I had no idea where I was. It was evening, so it was going to get dark soon, and uh, just at that point, I hear on the hydrophone the big propeller of a cruise liner coming up through Blackney Pass, and I'm sitting at the top end of Blackney Pass, and I I tell you, I was terrified, I just, you know, I, I was like, okay, at any second, the, the fog is going to split, and it's going to be the bow of this thing, and I could I could literally feel the terror coming up my body. I, I was like, I gotta I gotta get a plan. I gotta get a plan. And um, the A fives uh, group of whales. I was working with two different groups that day, but uh, they, they've been really difficult to follow. They've been kind of zigzagging all over the place. And the A fives came up literally around my boat, and I just felt this enormous sense of oh my gosh, I'm gonna stay with them. You know, little did I know they liked to bow ride on these, these cruise liners. So staying with the whales, and, and plus they were heading west out to the ocean. Staying with the whales, really, it was not a logical decision, but that's what I wanted to do. I felt safe with them. And so for the next 20 minutes or so, they were like, they were so close to me that I kept switching the engine into neutral because I was afraid it was gonna hit one. They were like right under the boat and they were popping up right alongside the boat, like right alongside. And um, after about 20 minutes, oh, I can kind of see something up ahead and oh, it's it's an island. Oh, I know exactly where I am. And I burst out into this beautiful sunset, super clear, bogs behind me. Being the you know <laughs> person I was, I was like, okay, where are you guys going to come up next? Let's keep recording data. Well, the whales did not come up again in my sight. So what had happened was they were going west. Uh, I got into the fog. They turned around and went east, dropped me off as soon as I got to where I could see. And then apparently they kept going west because they never came up again in my view. And for me, that was a very difficult moment because my gears were grinding. Worlds were colliding. I'm going to be just cut and dry scientist. You know, I was working at that time with the U.S. Navy working on, on whale sounds. I was not going to be a whale-hugging lover, you know, think that they're reading my mind. I was not going to do any of those things. And yet I could not reconcile what had happened to me, other than that they had turned around, stuck with me till I got out of the fog. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to take that experience and I'm just going to put it over here in my brain and I'm not going to even try to answer what had happened. But like you said, in talking to everybody who works with these animals, they have a similar experience. And I think, you know, a lot of people working with animals would probably tell you similar stories.
0: Well, I mean, it was one of the first things that came up when I was doing my research on Doll was Murray Newman saying, I think these things are psychic. I think they know we're here. I think they're staying. And it was really fascinating reading that early on and how here they were on a feeding route they'd been on hundreds of thousands of years uh, next to an island that they swam next to pretty much every other day, every other summer. And they just disappeared for 90 days, almost 90 days. Oh, there's our pain there. Forget it, we're gone. Yeah. It's kind of amazing.
1: There's a there's a lot there's a lot. I mean, they are using that brain, and there's a lot going on. And um, I mean, that's that's part of the big tragedy now that they've been displaced from their traditional winter territory, um, because they had such detailed knowledge about it. They they had a date with the Viner River chum salmon and the you know the spring salmon that came into Kinkum Inlet in the you know May and April. I mean, they they had it down, and they have incredible social system, and, yeah.
0: So. Well, when you were talking about the whale people birth in captivity, realizing that the grandmother's just as likely to teach the whales how to hunt and feed as the mom, so if that mom was taken out at, at a young age, she wouldn't have known the drill. She sure. wouldn't have known how to, she wouldn't have been able to pass down the culture because she didn't know it.
1: No, and she was physically challenged, because... What the baby would do is it, it apparently was born with some innate knowledge to go to a white spot. Well, the whales have a white spot at their eye, but they also have a white spot where the nipples are. And I guess in the wild, the, another female will push the baby down there and it figures it out. But instead, Corky's babies would fixate on the white spot on her head because she was, she was constantly pushing them off the wall of the tank, and they'd find the corner of her mouth and they would try to nurse on the corner of her mouth. And she was all about her babies. She did not look at anybody. She was all about her babies, and milk was flowing out of her, and her baby's starving, and it just, ugh.
0: And they just couldn't figure it out.
1: They never got it together. I mean, the trainers built a model. They trained her to nurse the model. They tried to get her to roll over and put the baby on her. They, they, they tried everything, unnatural. But what, what what they needed was Granny, or sister.
0: Um, when you started studying the whales' language, what you what were you finding out? What were you discovering?
1: Well, I discovered you know basically that there were calls associated with different types of activity states. So very excited, distressed, happy. You know, ha- you know, like feeding and. But also there was this one call um, that seemed to be associated with um, synchrony, which I I couldn't figure this call out because it appeared uh, heavily during a birth, it appeared heavily when whales were turning around in the open ocean, and also it appeared at the beginning and the end of conversations. And this was the fascinating thing about doing something like this, is you're like, oh, what is the same about all of those very different situations? And, uh, you know, I, the only thing that I could come up with is it was a moment where everybody was focused on one thing. And so turning around, everybody wants to make that turn, everybody wants to make sure they make that corner. Birth, births are huge for the orca, everybody's involved. And beginning and ending a conversation was a moment of, okay, we're going to get together and have a talk. It was a, a synchronizing. and. Uh, so that for me was the most uh, interesting call. Um but there was work going on at Woods Hole in uh, Rhode Island at that time that was theorizing that because the whales the, the the nerve that connects their ear to their brain is like a super highway whereas what we have is a you know a a rope bridge. It's <laughs> nothing to compare. So the information that they're getting between their you know, their ear and their brain is so... we can't even imagine what they're picking up. And the thought was that when the whales come into the inlet and they split on either side and they start calling back and forth to each other, that actually the receiving whale can see what is in between them by the holes punched out in the call that he receives. So it could be a way that they're finding schools of fish. Yeah, so there there, there was a lot of technical... Potential there, in addition to just being able to correlate sound to behavior.
0: How much of that is is the idea that they've got a collective, that they're speaking or or hearing collectively throughout collocation? That when you get that synchrony, it's because all of them are communicating together in a way that we don't do. Well,
1: yeah, who knows what's going on there? But they, you know, they have the they have that collocation. And they have the um, they have the calls, and uh, they can build up into quite a symphony. Uh, and they have the echoes of those calls. So I, I really it it would have taken all this time I've been chasing fish farmers around all that time uh, to try to figure out some of those things. And it's difficult to study whales because you don't see them most of the time. I did realize in retrospect it might have been better to work on elephants because you can follow their trails, you can look at their scat, you can see them for goodness sakes. Uh, Whales is difficult. You're just staring at the ocean most of the time, waiting for a glimmer of something that's going on. You really don't ever know what's going on with them.
0: Just that, in terms of being embedded with the whales, it's kind of you and Paul Spong's work. Lab, like, is there anybody else out there in the world who spent the kind of time listening that you have?
1: Well, there's there's people that have spent a lot of time out with them. There is one other research station up north, uh, a little bit north of me, um, Janie Ray at. Uh, I've forgotten the name of her research station, but yeah, I mean, I still have a hydrophone in my house now, and can hear them. Uh, day and night, even though I'm not working on them anymore. They really are my touchstone and my plumb line, and I, I need to be able to hear them.
0: Now, for the study, was it mostly transients or, or, or residents? Because My study was residents. Mostly the residents, right? But
1: I, I was really just familiar with the A-Clan dialect.
0: Okay. Now, did you catalog most of A-Clan? Like, was that, or is that part of the the catalog from your research? Or from Michael no, Beats there or a was combination of...
1: it was John Ford's catalog. So there were two of us that diverged, and he he cataloged the whole coast. I cataloged just the A's, and I'm a splitter, and he was more of a lumper. So he had I forget how many calls, but it was less than twenty. And when I listen to the A's, I hear sixty-two different calls because I just split out every little prefix and suffix, and you know because the whales to me seem to be adding and subtracting these things. Um, he was doing all of them, so he didn't have the amount of time to focus on that. But no, my catalog never got published. Um, it never got that far.
0: Now, was Saweetie your first book? And am I saying that right?
1: Saweetie was my first book, yes. It was just a yeah, book on little, it was a, a child's story about a little whale.
0: Well, I mean, Alan Twig listed it as like one of the essential hundred books of British Columbia. Oh, is that Not right? Uh, yeah, I went back and, and read it, and it's kind of amazing. Can you talk about sharing the story of whales with kids and how that came about?
1: Well, uh, Orca Books asked me to write it, and so I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but I wanted to make it very real. I wanted to make it from the whale's point of view, and I wanted everything that happened in that book to be a real event so that because children are naturally curious about animals, but they get so twisted, they get this, you know, I understand the need for fantasy books and all that, and that's important. But I think it's also important to have books that are fun and interesting with things that really did happen. And so that was my goal with that book is to um, to teach children a little bit about what it's like to be a little whale and how important their mom is to them. And, yeah.
0: When I looked at the wild and rugged mountains where the chimpanzees lived, I knew that my task was not going to be easy. Was there any book, movie, pop culture phenomenon that ever influenced you to fall in love with the environment?
1: Oh, Jane Goodall. Oh, yeah. So when I was a girl, there was only one other woman scientist, and that was Madame Curie, which I don't think anybody's heard of now. But she was a chemist and all the picture, pictures of Madame Curie are sort of blurry and she's got on a lab coat and they're in black and white. And I was fascinated with animals and uh, you know, particularly amphibians because I lived in New England and that, that was the animal life, this fabulous amphibian and reptiles. And I had this horrible sense of doom of growing up where I could not look at them i could not go down to the frog pond or look under the piece of wood for the snake i would have to give that up and it was i was devastated i was trying to get interested in the stars because i, I knew there were adults that studied astronomy and then jane goodall appeared on the cover of national geographic and i was just like oh <laughs> that's it oh my gosh i don't i i can i can continue my love of of animals i mean there she was beautiful in the jungle holding the hand of a chimpanzee, I just was, she, she, she opened the door to me. Oh, my goodness. She was such a relief.
0: On the B.C. coast, there's a growing opposition from citizens and First Nations to stop those big Norwegians, fish farm corporations, and save the wild salmon migrations. Anything we should be doing right now to save the whales, to help to make sure these whales are okay?
1: Yeah, you need to write your members of parliament, um, your MLA, and say it's not okay with me that we're wiping out our wild salmon for these salmon farms. Let's do something different. And the other thing you can do is when somebody like me or another environmentalist says we're putting on a demonstration, show up showing up is so huge i know it's a pain you don't want to take the saturday off you don't think you count you're wrong showing up is the hugest thing you could do right now because we are in serious trouble you're standing on a dying planet we know how to fix it but our leadership is caught in a log jam they cannot extricate themselves you can we're free so yeah recycling and all that is fabulous definitely have to do that Uh, but show up if you can possibly weed the meat out of your diet because that is one of the hugest polluting factors on our planet another thing you can do but write to your members of parliament and your mla and say I want wild salmon. I believe Alexander Morton. There's a better way to do this. And that's what we want you to do. Because I have been put in a silo. Government won't talk to me. Uh, Many forms of leaders won't talk to me because they've been told I am something. I'm not sure what. I'll tell you what, I am speaking the truth. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've gone to the lengths to publish it in scientific journals. I gave up everything I was trying to do with my life. And I feel very, very strongly that we have this tremendous opportunity to bring these fish back for ourselves, for our children, for the whales. It's just like a win, 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 win. People don't realize that. So that would be my advice to people.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please tell your friends. I'm Mark Lauren Young, and this is the Scanna Podcast. That's Scanna, S K A A N A. Please spread the word, subscribe on iTunes, and give us lots and lots of stars to help other people find us. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at Scanna.org. We'll send you updates on upcoming episodes, news about orcas, and oceans. If you didn't like the show, I'm Bill Nye the Science Guy. And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales, check out my book, That Killer Whale Who Changed the World, now available in paperback. I just saw it for the first time yesterday. It looks really cool. Ebook and a new audio edition at audible.com. Your first month of membership is free, so if you're not a subscriber, please test drive my book as your freebie. I think they'll still pay me for it and if you're game to help support us on patreon.com or know someone who might be game to sponsor us, that'd be awesome. And if you'd like to volunteer to help us pull this together, please contact us at scanna.org. Now here's how Alexander Morton wants you to make waves.
1: Hi, I'm Alexander Morton and there's something you can do to protect this world to make sure that our children have an opportunity to survive talk to your members of parliament and your MLA's about these salmon farms say you want wild salmon second when somebody's putting on a demonstration or a march for any part of this planet and it is in your neighborhood show up it's so important they show up i know it's difficult I know you think that you're not important as an individual. I'm here to tell you, you are. It is one of the most important things you can do. Show up. It also feels very good. And then, just look at your own life and make the changes. Because honestly, we are at a critical moment in the, in the history, and the evolution of our species. And there's changes you can make. Reduce the amount of meat that you eat. That is, it is huge. I mean, look at the documentaries if you need, if you need to do that. Um, recycle. Uh, keep your energy bill down. We really need to figure out how to survive on this planet, and we're not accomplishing that at the moment. So, so my advice to you is. Talk to your government representatives. Show up when there's a demonstration in your neighborhood about protecting the environment and do everything you can in your personal life to reduce your footprint on this planet.
0: Scan is produced by Rain Banu. I thought we'd end off our Alexandra Morton episode with a tune from Vancouver's own Said the Whale. Oh, Alexandra.